on itself. Being strong all the time took away our ability to speak about our weaknesses, our sadness, our mental illnesses. This silence is killing us. Welcome to another edition of the Black Doctor Speak podcast. Black Doctor Speak is your source for vetted, accurate information on African American health from some of the nation's top doctors and is sponsored by the African American Wellness Project. Welcome to today's podcast, Black Doctor Speak. This is our first in our new 2022 series of podcasts through Black Doctors Speak, where we hope to bring to you some of the world's experts in health issues related to communities of color. Our first guest today is Dr. George Woods. Dr. Woods is a very noted psychiatrist who practices in the Bay Area. We're going to talk to him about how the pandemic has changed the scope, or not changed it, of mental health and mental health outcomes for African Americans. Welcome to our program, Dr. Woods. Thank you, Dr. Miller, for having me. We know that uh, this has been a very stressful period for almost everybody, not only in the uh, healthcare field, but also obviously for people who are dealing with this pandemic. How has the mental health status of America changed uh, during this pandemic, especially uh, African-Americans? Well, the the mental health health status has worsened, uh, Dr. Lenore, and it's worsened because the pandemic has really brought to light what we have really learned in the last 10 or 15 years in psychiatry. And that is that environment trumps everything in the development of psychiatric disorders. Environment trumps genetics, environment trumps any other cues. And so when you have an environment that is as stressful and is isolating as the pandemic has created, it really allows the ability for the viruses to change the question of how uh, people respond emotionally, and not just emotionally, but cognitively. We know that approximately a third of the long haulers have cognitive, what we call fall, a brain fog, cognitive disorders that last even after uh, they may no longer be infectious. So consequently, it's had both a neurological impairment. Yeah, hold, on, hold on one second, George. Uh, I'm going to ask you that question again. And when you say long haulers, just explain okay. what that means. Okay. All right. So... All right, let's go. All right, Dr. Woods, we know that this pandemic has put a lot of stress on all communities, uh, and especially uh, I've seen it in the African-American community. How has the, how has the psychiatric climate, the, the, the environment uh, changed because of this pandemic? For the worse. Uh, we clearly know, uh, Dr. Lenore, that environment is the number one factor in the creation of mental disorder. Um, And certainly in the last 10 or 15 years, that's become increasingly clear, trumping even genetics, trumping even some things that we thought were much, much more important. But environment is really, really the factor in shaping uh, psychiatric disorder. So if you think about what the virus has done to our environment, um, it has isolated us, it has kept us, you know, in many ways captive. I didn't see my grandkids for eight months. Um, and then you can see how that environmental hammer uh, would, in fact, increase even mild mental disorder uh, to a much greater extent. Aside from the purely psychiatric component, you've got the neurological component. Uh, We know that people have developed long hauler disease, which is the symptoms that occur after the infection is gone in uh, in COVID. 
and many of those symptoms are neurological. Uh, poor memory, what we call brain fog, um, approximately 30% of those that have this long haulers disease have neurological symptoms. You know, one of the things that we are dealing with consistently here at the African American Wellness Project is we believe that vaccinations make a big difference uh, in terms of outcomes uh, and in terms of disease-specific uh, symptoms. Uh, you talked about the long hauler disease. I just saw an article yesterday that suggested that that's the result from the effect of the virus on the, in the spinal canal. Right. Um, so since that has occurred, what is the psychology uh, in the African-American community that's unique in their opposition to vaccinations? The, the psychology is, uh, as a friend of mine in, in Alabama says, um, you have to be trustworthy in order to have trust. And um, there are not only African-Americans, but others that really are concerned about the trustworthiness of our medical system, certainly our psychiatric system. And so um, that trustworthiness cannot just be ignored. It can't just be trampled on in the name of even a good science. Um, and we know that vaccines are the best science. So we really had to evolve in our approach toward getting everyone vaccinated. And let me just say, we need everyone vaccinated. We really have had to uh, evolve our approach from one, you gotta have it, you gotta have it, you gotta have it, to let me listen to your reasons and let me talk through those reasons. And let me be honest with you about that history, uh, the, Tuskegee, the Tuskegee experiment and others, where public health showed that they did not care about the African-American population. You know, but we've had a lot of information out there about the efficacy of vaccines, yet we still see, uh, in spite of the uh, death rates and the other um, uh, issues associated with the impact of this viral infection on African-Americans, need to do to turn this around from just a conceptual mental health point of view? Well, you know, um, I, I talk to people every week. Uh, I do different podcasts every week. And um, where we live here, my wife and I, we live between two homeless shelters. And I visit those homeless shelters every week, uh, talk to people, try to explain to them, let them know that there are there's vaccines that are out there that are available. Um, but it's really a function of listening, Dr. Lenore. We, we, we're not going to be able to shove this down their throat. And, I, and what I'm seeing um, over time is as we are able to listen to people and as they're able to see that people really do live with the vaccine and die without it, um, we're making a significant dent. But it's a tough call. I don't want to imply that I've got any answers up to that. You know, one of the things that we're most concerned about is the vaccination of children. You know, that's going to be an even tougher call. What do you think we can do uh, that makes that discussion a little more relevant? And let's let's broaden that discussion a bit. Uh, you know, when we start to look at who's talking to the African-American community and other communities of color, it's often people who are not from that community. Right. Uh, it's often people well-meaning and professional uh, and experienced people, 
uh, talking from a, a white perspective right. to uh, minority uh, communities or people of color. What advice do you have for them as they try to explain and discuss the whole issue of vaccination, trust, all the things that you brought up? Uh, what do you What do you tell them? Uh, are there some tips? Well, I think, you know, the first tip for me is to make sure you talk to your own community first, um, because I think these are cultural issues. These are cultural issues. And the point you just made, Dr. Nanor, in terms of them not being from uh, the African-American community, I think they're often, that's a class issue as well as a race issue. And, you know, I think that it's important for us as African-Americans to make sure, and particular as African-American quote, experts, unquote, to make sure that we enlist neighborhood communities, uh, folks, to talk, to have this conversation, not just the doctors, not just the psychologists, not just the psychiatrists, but the folks that are in the community that are impacted to such a great degree, to make sure that we're able to provide them with the information so that they can provide us with the entrees to make sure, to ensure that people will listen to what we have to say. Well, you know, we have a philosophy that we're just going to keep talking because we know that after a while, things get old and, you know, the money for discussions with minority communities and health equity, that all kinds of bounces back to where it used to be and it's not a permanent solution. So we at the African-American community are determined just to keep talking, uh, not to be judgmental, not to be negative, but just to keep talking about the facts as we perceive them. Let's broaden our discussion just a bit sure. to talk about the engagement of the African-American community in the general, with the general psychiatry community. Uh, and there are two, always two dynamics. One is what's going on with the institutions themselves that deliver the services. The other is what are we doing and what are the cultural norms in our community that make uh, us acquiring psychiatric services so difficult? Well, you know, it reminds me of a, a story, uh, Dr. Noor, of, I was probably about two weeks out of my uh, fellowship, and I went into a jail to see a young man that uh, was very, very ill, uh, that was supposed to be uh, a gang member. And um, as, he, uh, as he and I were talking, you know, I slipped into, uh, as they say, the vernacular, uh, I slipped into a conversation I tend to have a bad mouth anyway. I try to watch that um, and probably said some things that uh, I shouldn't have said. And he looked at me and he said, you know, he said, I'm surprised you talk like that. He said, I expected more from you. You know, and uh, it was a lesson that I've never forgotten because it really showed me that, you know, race isn't enough. Really having an understanding, the true humility to those that we serve as, you know, um, providers of care is very, very important. Race isn't enough. And that is certainly true when we talk about both, as we talked about the COVID, but certainly psychiatry. Being trained as a psychiatrist, having you know a dark skin, isn't enough to reach people. Um, because if you don't have the humility and you're not willing to listen to them and understand what they're trying to say, because we've all been trained by uh, the white institutions. There are very few of us that have been trained by, you know, um, institutions that reflect our, our color. And we've all been under pressure by the white institutions, even those that have been trained um, in institutions like Meharry 
et cetera. But we've all been trained by the five institutions. And it's very important that to understand that we, no matter what our color may be, we're bringing white psychiatry to the masses. And, that, and we need to straighten that out. Yeah, that bleeds into the whole system of unconscious bias. Right. Tell us about how that plays out in the field of psychiatry in your experience. Well, I, and this is my own, uh, this is my own bias. I, I have some issues with unconscious bias. Uh, I really do understand uh, how important believing that uh, people may not be aware of their biases and, and therefore we have to build structures around them to make sure that that, um, that doesn't impact us. Uh, I think unconscious bias is a great uh, paradigm when we're talking about juries, for example, or certain institutions. But, you know, I like like upfront bias. I think there's enough upfront bias in medicine. Uh, and we've seen upfront bias in medicine over the years to be able to uh, to deal with it in a in a straightforward manner. Now, I'm one of those people that wish the South Carolina had left their flags up because I want to know where you are. You know, uh, one of the that's a good that's a good analogy. One of the things that happens with African Americans, at least from my you know reading, I'm no expert, is that your institutions and psychiatry are very quick treat African American with medications. Correct. And African-Americans, I think, among the uh, ethnic groups are probably more suspicious of medications than probably any other ethnic group. Tell me how that all, that all plays out. Sure. There's a branch of, uh, of psychiatry, actually pharmacology. When I, when I, my fellowship is in psychopharmacology. And when I did my fellowship, uh, I focused on two branches. One is geriatric psychopharmacology, and the other one is ethno-psychopharmacology. And many people, even experts within the medical field, are really unaware of the fact that there is a subspecialty of pharmacology called ethno-psychopharmacology. And there are things that we know about different races um, and their uh, enzyme uh, metabolism of the liver, um, the fact of what they eat. For example, uh, a first-generation uh, person from Japan or from Vietnam really should be prescribed about one-third the amount of medication than someone that may be second or third generation. Um, African-Americans uh, metabolize um, medications at a slower rate than um, other uh, ethnic groups. So these are things that we know about that have been proven uh, scientifically, and yet uh, they are very rarely included in treatment. Um, they are often used from in research paradigms, but they're very, very rarely included in treatment. One of the other things that's unfortunate, but is also true, is that cognitive impairments, uh, and when I think of, the one I'm thinking of particularly, is fetal alcohol, um, is rampant in our community. Um, if you look on our corners, we have, unfortunately, as many uh, liquor stores as we have churches. And not everybody with fetal alcohol presents in the kind of classic way of having unusual eyes or um, unusual lips. Often people that have um, along that spectrum may just have cognitive impairments 
that we are not aware of. But none of this is really looked at uh, so often in our training, in our, and particularly in our approach toward African-Americans and other people of color. You know, these things are always a two-way street, aren't they? Uh, tell us a little bit about what you encounter uh, from the African-American attitude toward just, uh, mental health treatment and therapy, especially psychiatry. Well, um, what do I encounter? I encounter mistrust. I encounter, it seems like, you know, certainly, you know, uh, Dr. Noor, when we focus on our history uh, as African-Americans, uh, we so often focus on the most egregious components of our history because we, and much like the Holocaust with other groups, we, want, we never want to forget the most egregious components of our history. And yet those egregious components uh, like, you know, the Tuskegee experiments uh, or the fact that the woman that developed, uh, was first involved in Johns Hopkins um, for uh, stem cells uh, was never given a penny of the money uh, for that. Uh, that is, that becomes our entire history. And so now to be able to talk to uh, African-Americans about other parts of our history where we really have been actively involved in developing, you know, really excellent uh, treatments. The fact that an African-American psychiatrist was one of the first persons involved in the um, identification of Alzheimer's. Um, those are lost. Um, and when those are lost, all that occurs is the mistrust, uh, the fear that um, the Tuskegee experiment can occur again. So how do we overcome the stigma that's associated with mental health treatments uh, in the African-American community? People are always talking about, uh, you know, you, you, you're so crazy. You know, that, uh, and when you start to talk about mental health treatments, uh, people feel that, well, uh, this may mean that I really am crazy simply because I may uh, need some help or I may recognize uh, people in my environment who do need that help. Right. You know, uh, Dr. Noor, one of the things that I think is so important when we talk about mental health in general, but certainly within the African American community, is that we realize that we want to talk about mental health, not mental disorders. Many people within the African-American community, of course, are not schizophrenic. They are not bipolar. They do not have serious mental illness, but they do have problems that can be addressed. They do have problems that need to be addressed in order for them to function effectively. And I think that's really where the whole question that you brought up earlier in terms of unconscious bias is so important. You know, people in the African-American community have been traumatized. Trauma is a baseline in our community. And when I, you know, evaluate these people, I look to see what that trauma is all about because, because it's just part of, tragically, it's part of our community. But it's also something that you can talk to someone about. It's something that you can commiserate with them and you can develop a relationship that is based upon their needs rather than your science. So I think it's important to train um, experts, our people that provide in what we call trauma-informed care. 
Uh, and that's one of the things that I really want uh, us to continue doing in the African-American uh, alliance is to continue with trauma-informed care, to really develop an understanding of how people are traumatized, the ways in which they can still function very effectively uh, through that trauma, and yet it undermines them and creates problems with their tendencies. Now, you, know, you are the uh, chief scientific officer for a very large uh, conglomeration of uh, mental health facilities. Uh, what changes have you made in those, in their approaches to the care of um, uh, people of color? Well, let me just say that my first seven years of uh, training from 1983 to 1990, um, I worked at Crestwood um, and I worked as a psychiatrist. And I was stunned by how they treated their people as opposed to how, uh, how I'd learned in medical school. Uh, I came back two years ago, um, and what I learned at Crestwood is that they're not a medical model. They're a psychosocial rehabilitation model. Um, and so consequently, um, things like trauma-informed care is part of our model. You know, I mean, uh, we, we celebrate to the extent that you can't celebrate uh, Black History Month. Uh, we certainly acknowledge it. I'm not sure there's something worth celebrating all the time, but we certainly acknowledge uh, Black History Month. And we, we, we do something about this. We, um, and one of some things we do that may not seem as though they are aimed toward um, African-American populations, but um, we have 7,000 clients. We have 30 facilities. We serve a heart-healthy diet throughout our entire facility. Um, we make sure that the clients in our in our facilities, those that we say, those we serve, we really look carefully and do assessments for cognitive symptoms, for other types of symptoms that we know African Americans and other people of color we have. And we also really work to make sure that our staff reflects our population. So uh, I think that that's probably more than many, many uh, facilities have done. I think to a certain extent, the mental health community has a very big job to do. Uh, and often it's criticized uh, really probably unfairly uh, for outcomes that uh, sometimes cannot be predicted. Uh, and so I think therein lies one of the problems that we have in this country terms of people accessing uh, symptoms, uh, accessing services. One final area that I think is really important for us to discuss is the whole role of violence in our society. I mean, obviously, uh, the numbers are not always clear that things are much worse, but it just seems to me that there's far more violence now than there was before this pandemic. Is that just a perception, awareness, or, or are we seeing a real phenomena, and why? Well, let me move back for just a moment, Dr. Lenore. Uh, I, I have to say, and again, this is my own opinion, I don't think that it's unfair. Um, I, I think that it may not be uh, totally accurate, but I think that as mental health professionals, we have a, a greater responsibility than we have chosen to uh, fulfill. And I think we have every, people have every right to expect us to fulfill that um, and as far as violence, you know, um, the 1960s and 1970s were much more violent. 
uh, the 1930s and 1940s were even more violent than, than those than those periods. So the periods that we're in now, except for this uptick from about 2019 through the pandemic through today, um, is, is really not the most violent period in American's history. Uh, but what it is, it's the most gun-laden period in American history, right? So when I think about you know violence, I think about gun violence. And I just don't think about homicides. I think about suicides. You know, we have more suicides uh, secondary to gun violence than any uh, in any other country, as well as the homicides. So uh, I lay solely at the feet of, of, of gun violence. That isn't to say that um, the trauma that people have have experienced, because trauma will make you feral. You know, and when I mean feral, I mean like the fear. Like the feral animals that only take care of themselves, you know. You see a a, a group of foxes, and those baby foxes—they don't necessarily care, take care of their other foxes. They're feral animals; they only take care of themselves. And I think that the trauma has done that tragically for our inner city community communities. It's made people only want to take care of themselves. However, if you didn't have a gun in your hand, it would be a much much different circumstance than what we see today. Any suggestions for the society as we that's a big this is a big responsibility. Uh, but for the society as it relates to, to changing dynamic uh, about vaccinations, to changing the dynamic about homelessness, to changing the dynamic about violence. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm hopeful, Doctor Noor. I really am. I'm uh, you know maybe it's because I'm a Capricorn, but 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 I, I'm hopeful because I think the pandemic tore the uh, patch off of the social determinants of health. You know, I think it tore the patch off the fact that um, in, in dementia, uh, even though African-Americans have a significant higher pre prevalence of dementia, uh, we are very, we're very few of the clinical studies. Um, the fact that up until 2008, many, many clinical studies for depression I did not have women in them because they didn't want someone that could get pregnant and mess up their studies. And so I, I have real hope in this younger generation, as well as uh, people like you and organizations, not just this organization, but the other organizations that you have started and really created. Um, I have real hope that we, uh, that the pandemic will have a good turnout, but we've got to determine, as a, as a friend of ours, John Burris says, that this is a movement and not a moment. Uh, Dr. Woods, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, obviously, you will be leading the initiatives that the African-American Wellness Project uh, puts forth in terms of trying to solve some of these issues of vaccination and to keep talking to the African-American community, not only about this whole pandemic and adjusting to it, but about the need to be able to access uh, services for mental health when you need them, recognizing them in yourself, and in your family. So I think this discussion goes a long way to helping us to understand uh, these dynamics. And thank you so much for thank taking the time. If you enjoyed our show, please remember to hit the subscribe button so that new episodes are delivered directly to you every week, as well as rate us on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, listening to our show is as simple as telling your Alexa, Siri, or Google to play the Black Doctor Speak podcast. Take care, everyone.
Take care. Okay, I'm going to do just a couple things. Uh, hold it just a second. All right, thank you for joining us on today's edition of the Wellness Watch. Uh, I'm Dr. Well, all right, let's thank Dr. I want to thank Dr. Woods for joining us today on the Wellness Watch. A lot of good information discussed about the mental health aspects of the pandemic and just mental health in general as it approaches the African-American community. Uh, we want you to remember we're on every uh, week on Wednesday, at, predictably, at 6 p.m. And also at other times, our programs are repeated. Uh, we're sponsored by the African-American Wellness Project, uh, blackdoctor.org, uh, and also sponsored uh, by, oh, let me say it. Let me do that again. Thank you, Dr. Woods, for joining us on this week's edition of the Wellness Watch. A lot of good information about the issues around mental health, particularly for people of color, particularly in this time of the pandemic. Uh, we hope that um, you appreciate, as an audience, uh, the guidance that Dr. Woods will give us as we in the African American Wellness Project forge ahead to develop programs that will help you understand some of the issues around mental health and help you to make some decisions uh, around how you approach the mental health of yourself and your family. So uh, once again, thank you to Dr. Woods. Uh, remember, we're on every Wednesday from at 6 p.m. and we're repeated at other times. We're sponsored by the African American Wellness Project and blackdoctor.org. Uh, we're, sponsored, we're sponsored by the African American Wellness Project and blackdoctor.org. So remember, health is your biggest asset. I'm Dr. Mike Lenore. We'll talk again next week. Our first guest on our new series is Dr. George Woods. Dr. Woods is a very known. Our first guest today is Dr. George Woods. Dr. Woods. Our first guest. Our first guest today is Dr. George Woods. Dr. Woods is a very noted psychiatrist who practices in the Bay Area. We're going to talk to him about how the pandemic has changed the scope, or not changed it, of mental health and mental health outcomes for African Americans. Welcome to our program, Dr. Woods. 